Please, you may be seated. All right, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open it and to turn to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 12 and following, and we will continue into the second chapter, verse, two, uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. Hopefully by now you all have that. If not, you have a copy of it uh, in your bulletin in front of you. And I will go ahead and read this for us. This is God's holy, inspired, and errant, and authoritative word. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things they have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects at his own all peoples. This concludes the reading of his word. If you would, please bow with me for a minute as we pray for illumination. Father God, prepare our hearts by your Holy Spirit's power to illuminate your word and enable us to accept what we hear. Silence in us any voice but your own, that in hearing your voice, we may also obey your will, and delight in your word, and find comfort and certainty in our Savior and Redeemer, which it is through his name, Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. How long must I wait for you, God? Something that our prophet Habakkuk seems to be echoing with the words that we read just a second ago, and something which many of us are familiar with as well as we experience different trials and tribulations throughout our days and our weeks. I think that it's something that actually the minor prophets actually speak to a lot and bring a lot of comfort for us and bring a lot of joy and a lot of understanding for each of us. Although we look at this and we see that this prophet is voicing his complaint. He is voicing his concern before God. 
He's doing so in a pretty strong way, I would argue, with pretty harsh words, if we consider them through the lens of humanity. But often we have a disposition that needs to be fixed, much like I think Habakkuk does. And he becomes aware of that, I think, as we even hear his complaint. It forces us to consider and to truly evaluate the questions that we have. To not look at the immediate world, we are forced to consider and trust God's provision. Where he is at work, what he is doing, what is he saying to Habakkuk, and what is he saying for us today? Now, I come into this pulpit reflecting on this question, how long must I wait for you, God, with my own lens? I cannot interpret it by my own strength. I refuse to do so by my own strength, but I still come with that lens that taints and forces me to look at it a certain way. Each of you read this question a certain way. You read this passage a certain way. But we would do it injustice if we were to read it only through our own lens, if we were to look at it only through our own understanding, if we were not to go and understand what Habakkuk's world had to offer for us, what it was that was occurring in his time, how it is that this ultimately must shape us as well. Context matters. Context is everything. For we can construe context however we want when viewed through our own lens, and so I urge you and encourage you not to do that. I know that the minor prophets can be a challenging and interesting place to try to understand what is going on. And often I think when we go through our Bible readings and our plans each year, and as we approach these prophets, sometimes we kind of skim through these. We get through them quickly. They're not things that we ultimately get as much joy of out of sometimes as, as the New Testament. So I want to encourage you to, to stop and consider and think and let it breathe into your world and consider this holy word that God has for us. Now, it's exciting to be here in, in Aaron's absence and preach. Last time I preached to you, actually, was, uh, was about four months ago at the start of the pandemic, and it was a very different experience for me preaching to this room empty. I had never done that before except in a seminary class environment where I had to preach to myself and record it and then watch it, which was agonizing. (laughs) But in this context today, I'm thankful that I get to engage with and hear each of you. And so it's a pleasure to be with you here, uh, my church family now, that as I this summer moved about 10 minutes or so down the road, have have started worshiping here with you all. So it, it is fun, and in that context, and I also decided that with everything that is going on in our world, rather than continuing with a, a one off, it was pretty important and pretty apparent to me that it was appropriate for me to continue on through the book of Habakkuk and to go on to his second complaint. As we find ourselves in a situation unique in our world that we have not all under, uh, understood fully and, and gone through before, of that of a pandemic, and every four years we have political seasons and everything going on, we might be prone to ask, how long must I wait for you, God? and file our own complaints against the Lord. So with that being said, I think it's helpful for us to look to Habakkuk and consider this book unfolds in about four sections. It's a quick read. It's three chapters. I'd encourage you to go and later read this book this afternoon. It's not going to take very long at all. So we've gone through our first complaint about four months ago. 
And now we are in a second complaint where Habakkuk has a slight shift of heart where he is in the midst of his complaint, after his complaint, acknowledges how he needs to position himself, where and what is his focus, and how he needs to be oriented towards God. And then he hears the Lord's response. So this comes at the end of the era of the kings of Israel, which was a period of about four or 500 years. And so as we find ourselves at the end of that, there are specific realities that existed for the Israelites. They are about to experience oppression at the hands of, as, our, as, as the book says, the Chaldeans, which is actually the Babylonians, here in less than 20 years. So, so many scholars, brighter than myself, have gone through and, and, and placed this book written somewhere between about 600 and 610 B.C., which Israel ends up in exile in 583. So less than 20 years from now, they're going to be in exile. And I, I said all this four months ago, but if I was sitting there, I would be like, I don't remember what was said four months ago. So hopefully it's a help and a mercy to each of you to, to be reminded of these things, to be reminded of the book of Habakkuk, and to consider this important question when we hear his word preached, and to take comfort and to grow and consider this context, because I actually found when I was a younger man that it was really hard for me, as I already said, to, to go through the minor prophets, and I didn't get a lot out of it, because I didn't understand the time, the background, the context, the history of, say, in this case, 20 years before oppression, 20 years before they're going to be in exile. And they find themselves actually under a bad king right now. We know that because of other places in scriptures, and some of the reading actually here in Habakkuk kind of confirms and shows that as well. So that brings us to the dating of where we find ourselves of right around 600 B.C. Here they are, in many ways, people that are actually living pretty unrestrained that they are not living in a way that is, is consistent and holy and perfect with, with God's word and what it is that the law has been laid out for them previously to uphold. And, and, and we know they could not perfectly keep it. And that is why Christ had to come. So here they are and they're sitting and they're waiting for a savior and they think that he's coming soon. And he did, it was 600 years later, but he came. And so for us, as we consider this question and frame it against this, hopefully that helps us to understand these Chaldeans and how Israel really was not fully resting in full dependence upon God. They maybe thought they were, and maybe Habakkuk at first felt, hey, we are more righteous than the Chaldeans, but there's not full dependence. So in light of this question, I hope that you would consider this, and I hope that this is where it hits you today, that as we ask this question, you would come to this truth and understand and believe with confidence God's character, that you could know and trust it, that grace and mercy of our God will always be consistent for you. So know and trust God's character, that his grace and mercy will always be consistent for you in light of these words from Habakkuk. All right, so with that being said, if you would, look in your bulletins and you will see that I have three promises from our text which will help you in believing this foundational truth. With that groundwork being laid, our first promise this morning is this. We will see injustice, yet know the consistent character of God. Now looking at the book of Habakkuk, our first complaint falls before our passage today. And Habakkuk, looking at the sheer might of these Babylonians with his second complaint, is in many ways doing some of what he did in his first complaint. 
but he is also shifting it a little bit more. I would say there is a dogmatic nature that it's a little bit stronger, some of the language that he's saying. And he even continues, though, to, to start, though, in a slightly better place. He starts in verse 12 and says this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He goes on after this verse to speak of God ordaining the Babylonians for correction, rebuke, and judgment for part of the Israelites here. But he starts with this consistent truth that God is consistent. He is from everlasting. He knows with confidence the character of God. He has seen it to be true. Each of us have seen it to be true for those who believe by faith that Jesus is enough. With that being said, I think that we see two reasons actually here at the end of chapter 1 to help us with this. And the first of those reasons here is I think that we see actually our prophet who is, uh, he's playing a little bit of a comparison game. And we can do that. He's playing his comparison game here in verses 13 and 14. And he's looking at them and, and seeing these people that seem to be more evil is essentially what he says. They're more evil than Israel. So why are you doing it in this way, God? Why are you letting it unfold in this way? He's asking why God idly, ultimately, is sitting by. Is Israel truly righteous, though? As I've already suggested, and our passage really suggests for us, too, in the context of what was going on in their world, we know that they're not. And more so than just our immediate passage today, we know Scriptures confirms this as well. When you consider places like the Psalms and Psalms 53 and Psalms 14, and almost all of Paul's letters, even so explicitly so in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, where he talks about no one is righteous. No, not one. So Habakkuk, as a prophet, as a person of God, would know this, he would see this, he would believe this, but yet he's still filing a complaint. He's still frustrated by his immediate circumstances. I would say he's putting righteousness through his own eyes. He's evaluating it through his lens. Now we all can be prone to do this. We can all take righteousness and look at it through our own lens and determine that we are the standard and that we are the ones who determine what is righteous. Now I'm going to use an illustration for a minute and, and think about this. I'm a Kansas City boy, and if it would be like me saying, LC's barbecue hands down the best barbecue in the world. Their burn-ins, bar none, the best there are. You might believe that Arthur Bryant's or uh, Roscoe's or some other barbecue that is, is your pet favorite is actually the best, that they are the most superior. Now, we all know that there's potentially a perfect burnt end out there in the world, and we probably at some point will have it, at LC's. <laughs> but in truth, there really is not a perfect burnt end. Just like there is not perfect righteousness as defined on our own standards, we cannot evaluate by our own personal subjective standard as to what is righteous and ask God to act on our standards. We do it all the time, but we shouldn't do it. We do it in such a way where we are shifting and putting ourselves in the seat of power, putting ourselves in the place that ultimately is playing God. 
What a dangerous place to find ourselves. So we are not to judge us ultimately, and at the end of our days, this will be a reality that we, we are confronted with firmly, definitively. And Habakkuk is, Habakkuk is wanting to hold up the righteousness of the people as, as being more righteous than the evil outsiders, and, and perhaps truly they are. Those evil outsiders are living by their own strength, their own might, they're having rich lives. But it's a slippery slope. It's one that loses our eternal focus. It's not focusing in the already completed but not yet that we heard prayed for earlier this morning. But thankfully, it is a mercy that God has placed many of us into this, this beautiful covenant of grace when we trust and believe in him by faith And this should drive us to consider his goodness in passages like this, in places of scripture that are tough and difficult. Now we're going to feel the injustice of this, and that is our second thing related to our first truth. We're going to feel the injustice of Babylonian oppression and even exile in 20 years, and what is going on with them conquering. I mean, they were conquering the world at that time, the Babylonians, that is. But like the prophet, consider the true state of evil. Now, our Westminster Confession, chapter 6, reminds us of this, as it says regarding the fall of humanity and sin and punishment and and, and talking about sin and evil. It states this, whereby we, Christians, are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, wholly inclined to evil, and do precede all actual transgressions, the corruption of our nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated, although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified. So what this is saying, and I'm trying to unpack for you as well, that we're going to, to, to feel the weight of evil, that we're going to see evil around us. And in those moments, we might think, well, uh, Christ has applied his righteousness to me, and, and, and so thus through that, I'm going to, to work through my own lens. No. Firmly, emphatically, no. Go through his lens Go through his scripture, through his word, to determine what is truth and what is just and what is right as he defines in his way that has been bought with sinless, perfect, righteous blood of Christ and been imputed to us though we were fully evil. This is the truth that we're confronted with daily in our broken world, though. It is truly broken. But with confidence, brothers and sisters, we look to Christ's sacrifice. We know that justice will prevail. That those who are like Babylon, whether they be those in our immediate world around us and those that we're prone to look at and feel like it's not fair, justice comes through Christ's blood. It has already been purchased through Christ's blood, both for the Israelites then that they were looking to their Messiah and for us today who claim his blood. The Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled and we cling to this through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Now it's pretty important to consider this and to look at our next promise. 
I, I really love this one. This next promise comes in verse 1 of chapter 2. Look at the posture of our, of our prophet. We must wait on the Lord no matter how long it feels it will take. Hmm. We must wait on him no matter how long it feels it will take. We must wait for him. Habakkuk talks about here that he will go to his watch post, that he will take watch even when it's hard. He will watch and wait for the Lord. We will feel pulled by the world's standards to redefine things, to change things, to shift slightly, to become more agreeable and amenable to our friends, to our neighbors, our coworkers. What they desperately need is the true and unadulterated love of Christ. We all know that. We've experienced that. So we hold this out. And we know that we will ultimately one day, at the end of this, this day here on earth, face that as well. That we must live for his glory. It is hard to wait for him. I'm not saying it's not. But we must do it. This means we forcefully fight against sin in our culture and everything that is at work within us. We consider our own moral lens and that which I was talking about at the beginning and how we come to things and try to taint it through our perceived experiences, our worldview, and we say, no, God, refine me, correct me, rebuke me, turn to the Lord in his fullness, trust in him. Have a confidence in his faithfulness no matter what, that you will take up your watch post like Habakkuk and wait for the Lord to respond, whether that be this day, which we know he has already spoken through Christ, and the certainty of what will be done, and that of the promised eternity, of glory, of, of riches unfathomable, things that we can not even begin to, to believe that will come. Consider your second Adam. Consider Jesus. When you read his word and hear the story of redemption of Jesus freely given to you. Praise him for his covenant of grace for those who have believed. For those that the Lord has granted that repentance and belief to each of you and placed upon your heart. When you begin to trust in your fears, dire situations, circumstances that are daunting, are scary, are hard, turn to him. That is where we must turn. So turn to his word. Trust in this inerrant word. Trust in his authoritative word that is given to you that the spirit breathes through. Anywhere else will be folly. It might have a mixture of truth, and there might be things we say, yeah, that sounds good. But guess what? Like we already said, Christians with our indwelling sin have some residual effects of that this side of eternity. And so we fight for sanctification. We fight for growth. But by his strength and his power alone, that is only possible. By what he has given to us. And we're going to see messiness in the church, too. Don't we all see that day to day? We see messiness in his church and the people who are around us, and often we can be prone to look at the church 
And our friends and coworkers will look at the church and sometimes say, well, that, that looks hypocritical. That looks, that looks wrong. That doesn't look fully redeemed. Well, it has been fully redeemed. We know it has been redeemed. But at the same time, we're looking to sin in those places. We're not looking to the bridegroom. You're looking to the bride. And so, yeah, this side, as we said, there's going to be sin that resides in each one of us. But that doesn't mean that we don't invest. That doesn't mean we don't participate. That doesn't mean that those people who are outside of the walls of the church don't desperately need their Savior. Even more so, they need their Savior. They need those people to walk with each other, to refine each other. We, I need each of you. you. I hope that you need me. And as we walk together and consider these things, this is where we're walking towards. This is what we are considering as we, we look at Habakkuk and hold out. We hold out Christ, not the church. We can quickly hold up that. So hold out him. We wait for him no matter how long it feels it will take. Just like Habakkuk here in 2.1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what he, what God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So we have a lot of comfort here. It actually comes right after Habakkuk. I know these first two promises have been heavy. There is a weight to them. But our third promise ends up it ends up with certainty with what I've been already unpacking and unfolding in some capacity that God will give direction in his time. The Lord does so for Habakkuk. He will do so for each of us. He even says here in verses 2 through 5 where we see this, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Make it clear to the people of God. And it may seem slow, it says. It's, if it seems slow, Wait for it, verse 3. It will surely come. It will not delay. It will come in his time, even if it feels slow, because it will feel slow on our terms. Because all we have for our perspective is our 75 years here, 100 years on earth. It's hard to look at the past. It's hard to look to the future and to consider the God who is outside of time, who made it, who is over it all, and has ordained each of us each of the, the things that are here in this world, that he is creator over it all, that he knows your hearts, that he bought your heart, that he came to you and redeemed your heart if you have believed. This is what we see here. And actually here in, in chapter two, the, the, we see two quick dispositions actually in two through five I think as well that we're going to see first. I'm actually gonna walk through verses four and five before two and three. We should not trust in what we can see like those of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. For maybe they will experience temporary pleasures for a season, for a time. But the scripture tells us here, they trust in three things. They're being puffed up, and they trust in wine, and they trust in their own greed. It's all about me, my consumption, my desires, my pride for the Chaldeans. So we are not to be people who trust in what we can see like the Babylonians. We trust in the things that have been promised like in verses 2 and 3. We know that he will act with certainty. The vision awaits its appointed time. God will not lie. 
He will not delay. It has been established through his certain promise. That's what we're seeing here. And actually, what's incredible is we look at these two comparisons of these two people, we see it more plainly when we actually go to the Hebrew. It's really amazing. It talks about, in some translations, actually, the ESV gets a pretty good job of this, does a pretty good job of translating this nature. It says, the soul here, the soul of the Babylonians, ultimately, it's talking about which is great. Behold, his soul is puffed up. Often other translations say uh, his, his flesh or his life is not upright within him. That's, there's two words in the Hebrew, and so you would have a, a much like you would think of um, some of our Jewish friends would say, would say, Kayah, or, I'm, I'm terrible at Hebrew pronunciation, but Kayah, to life. It's to the physical life, to the immediate life, to that which is seen. What we're seeing here is that they're, they're trusting in that life. They're trusting in wine. They're trusting in greed. They're trusting in being puffed up in their pride. But God tells them here, tells the prophet, and tells for the people of that day, their soul, their nephesh, is puffed up. Their soul is not right. They don't realize it because they're looking to their own flesh. They're looking to the things seen, not the things unseen as we are encouraged to do. So that's our second thing. Look to the things unseen regarding the Lord giving direction in his time. Look to the things unseen. Wait for him. In God's time, he will act and respond accordingly. Now this brings us back to the original question that I that I. I, I posited to you at the beginning of, of how long must I wait on God? What can I do when this world looks dark and sinful and oppression seems certain and there's injustice all around me? Is God truly working? You might be asking yourself. Now we've seen three promises regarding this and we, we, we know with certainty that we will see injustice because of the, the curse in the garden and the sin that came in the garden, but we will know the consistent character of God. And second, we must wait on that God no matter how long it feels it will take. Just like Habakkuk, we have been promised through all of scriptures that which is coming, that which for us has come. That we are people who are to trust, third, that the Lord will give direction in his time, not our time, not by our standards, and praise him that he's placed us into a, a covenant family and those who are here together that see that, that know that, that trust that, and see that God is fully working. This is not our home, that we are sojourners through this place, that one day very soon we have promised eternity. He has given us eternity through his righteousness imputed to us, eternity is what is certain. And it's not just eternity for the sake of living in this flesh. It's eternity for the sake of living for his glory, for his kingdom, for his righteousness. That's what we're seeing through the blood of Jesus. That is what we cling to and hope in. So when we say, how long must I wait, God? 
We know that this side of eternity, there will be brokenness. I had a seminary professor, Dr. Tomlinson, who has since retired, who would always say, suffering leads to glory. Because we see that as what, the, the, that what Christ modeled for us, and we see that throughout much of the rest of scriptures, that here in this short race, we will have suffering. But it leads to glory. It leads to us being with him. That right now we look through our veil dimly. And we look and we see the things of God and we just have glimpses. We have the certain fulfillment of his word and his scriptures, so trust them. Read them. Study them. Pray them. Be people who are bound to his word and who love his word. His word which that word made flesh is Jesus, it's enough for you. It is enough. That is where we hang our hat all of our days. That is where we wait as we wrestle with how long must we wait. We wait for our Christ, our better brother, who is the sinless and spotless lamb. God has spoken, our promise is certain. This much we know. You would, would you please pray with me? Father God, help us delight in you. Help us abide as we see Jesus reminds us in John 15 that he abided in you. We know this is not our home. Help us wait in our daily struggles. Help us to live focused on you by your Holy Spirit, which lives within us and gives illumination of your word. God, where I have air today, let those things pass by the hearts of your people. But God, where there is truth, which your truth comes only through your word, not through mine, convict us all the more deeply. Take these incredibly weak words that I have given, and and would you bring to life your word in hearts? Be patient with us, forgive us for the places where we have trusted by our own strength. For those of us who by faith believe, remind us of your incredible promises. And when we ask how long must we wait, show us your character and the plans you have laid that Jesus has died for us. So, Father, I ask all this through his perfect name. Amen.